You know when you just meet those people that inspire you by hearing their story and all that they've been through? Well, today you get to meet one of those people. We have Rachel Hibbard on. She's a 22Q mom and an author of a book called Just Jen, Living with Invisible Differences. She wrote the book inspired by her daughter, Jen, who has 22Q. And today, Jen shares her journey and her daughter's journey and how hard the first year of life was for both of them and what they're doing to work through the trauma that they both went through. So I'm honored to introduce you to Rachel. Welcome to the 22Q podcast. My name is Becky White. And today I have a dear friend, Rachel, on with me. And while we were preparing for this podcast, she sent me a text message. And I'm going to read you a piece of that text message right now, just about her 22Q journey. So here it is. If it is helpful to know in advance, we had a NICU stay heart issues, an early 22Q catch, a GI bleed that had her inpatient for nearly five weeks, and five blood transfusions, which were super duper traumatic. And my thyroid tanked, and I was off the charts, headed towards a thyroid coma. And then four surgeries before 11 months. The first year nearly killed us both all the therapies, all the school, so many surgeries, ears, spine, two times, heart. I finally found others with 22Q when she was about seven years old. Fast forward to anxiety, OCD, mental health issues, and intrusive thoughts. Now realizing no depth perception means no driving for her, plus Actual versus mental age means likely living with us indefinitely. I think those are the major hits. And I wanted to start that today because it continued with all of the things that her and her daughter went through in her first year of life. And I then replied back to her that she's so amazing and I'm going to cry. Sometimes, as 22Q's parents, we forget the early years. And we forget how much our child has gone through, but also what we've gone through. And so Rachel is a wealth of knowledge on therapy strategies and has gone through a lot. So I wanted to start today with that and just say to Rachel that you are amazing and I love you very much, but welcome Rachel to the podcast and please introduce yourself. Well, thank you, Becky. (laughs) It's so nice to be here with you. Uh, My name is Rachel Hibbard, and I live outside of Chicago, Illinois, in Northwest Indiana. Uh, I used to work in downtown Chicago. I don't anymore. Now I am at home full-time, and I am married, and I have three kids and two what I consider bonus kids. Mm -hmm. And we have a new baby Yorkie puppy. Yeah, who's adorable. Well, thank you for being on. Well, first of all, what do you do, Rachel? What do I do? That's a funny question. Uh, Yeah, my official title is mom. I am the official caretaker of people and all of the things that come with a special needs kid that I Mm -hmm. take care of. Um, My husband and I early on split up the billing duties. I could no longer do the checkbook. So 
I took over medical billing and he took over family billing. And it has pretty much been that way ever since. That was our divide and conquer method of surviving it because we had so much medical stuff happening. Mm-hmm. On the side, I guess technically I'm also the CEO of Kindness Media because I wrote a little coloring book for kids that have 22Q or actually any invisible differences yep. so that I could take that to schools and share it with the 22Q community because there wasn't a book like that out there to talk mm-hmm. about kids and their differences and how do you deal with people that look different or people that sound different or just differences in our classrooms or in their community. Mm-hmm. And, and we're on people- the side, technically, I am also an ambassador of the 22Q Foundation. I'm like the rah-rah cheerleader, couldn't love them more. I also do some like freelance editing, but like in pieces. I Because my life is what it is, I can only do bits and pieces here and there. So I take small projects and mm-hmm. do what I can when I can. Exactly. Do what you can when you can is <laughs> the motto of all 22Q parents. <laughs> Really? We should make t-shirts. Um, but thank you for being on and please just share your journey with us, with your daughter and how it started. And when you found out about your 22Q diagnosis. Well, it started back in 2007. I got pregnant and it's funny. I feel like at one point I was praying and God spoke to me and said, this baby's going to be special. And I completely ran it in the wrong direction. I was like, cool. I've had two girls. I'm going to have a boy. He's going to be like the next Billy Graham. Completely ran the wrong direction with it. And he didn't give me any other direction other than like, this kid's going to be special. And it didn't dawn on me until she was born. Like, A, she wasn't a boy. Everybody, even the doctor thought she was going to be a boy. So it was a huge surprise. And B, she was special upon arrival. Like prior to her birth, everything was beautiful. I had no morning sickness. I felt great. And then third trimester, I ended up with extra amniotic fluid. So I looked like I was carrying triplets. Um, So I went into preterm labor at 36 weeks and ended up on bed rest on my left side for the last four weeks. In the hospital or were you at home? They sent me home. Wow. So I lived on the couch in the living room. Wow. (laughs) And every time I stood up, I went into hard contractions. Oh my gosh. And you had two littles at home. I did. Yeah. How, how, how? That's, yeah. I, I, that's... I think I just, I try not to think about it much because yeah. it was hard and I'm thankful that I had family nearby and church family that stepped up and they brought us meals. And not only did they bring the meals, they had to like plate the food for my kids. Cause I couldn't even get up and do that. So wow. it was amazing like all of the people that helped in those four weeks. So what was the day like when she finally arrived? We wanted to try to keep her in there as long as possible, just to make sure that she was going to be healthy, lungs developed, all that jazz. Um, When I went into preterm labor, they did an ultrasound and said, you know, normally with this much fluid, we see there's a genetic component to it, but we're not seeing any like Down syndrome or any special things that are leading us to believe that there's anything to be worried about. So just go home and try not to worry about it. And we'll do a slow induction on your due date, assuming you make it to then. Um, and I did. So we were, you know, at risk for a cord prolapse, which is why we wanted to do the very slow induction. So we did. And the whole like day of birth was actually good. I had 
a good labor and delivery with her, if you can call it that. (laughs) You know, labor is labor. Um, But as soon as she was born, we knew, we knew something was wrong. She had Mm -hmm. a big emphalocele hernia. So the umbilical cord was coming out of this like lump in her belly button area. Basically, like her organs were coming out of like the stomach wall was open. Gotcha. Um, You know, you probably have seen some scary pictures of kids where like there's a a part of their liver hanging out of their belly. Um, Mm -hmm. Hers was kind of like that, but it was covered by skin. So it was less frightening because all of everything was held in by her skin, but it was still very obvious with that and with her cry, the sound of her didn't sound right. And when they went to suction her, she did a lot of thrashing around and they just figured out, okay, if there's something going on with this kid in the back of her throat, we need to, we need to follow up. So we had really excellent, excellent care. I delivered in a level three NICU. That hospital is the Munster Community Hospital. So did they spot that? on the ultrasound prior to delivery? No, they, they didn't ever give me any findings of anything besides the extra amniotic fluid. Okay. But yeah. there wasn't necessarily anything they could have seen on ultrasound with her palate. Okay. I mean, the neonatologist, right. like once they took her from delivery into the NICU, then they started discovering, oh, okay, there's something wrong in the back of this kid's throat. Yeah. And she had a soft palate cleft and they Mm -hmm. found that right away. So that combined with the hernia, the doctor was like, okay, we need to check on other things. And then as soon as they listened to her heart, they figured out, oh, this kid has something cardiac wise going on. We need to check this out right away. So then once they had palate and heart, they went, okay, well, let's check kidneys. And so it just kind of like triggered this list of things that the neonatologist was checking into. And he immediately called a geneticist who came within 24 hours. She was on her way to a wedding. And she stopped by and said, based on the thing, based on the findings of the neonatologist, I'm fairly certain. I can't say 100%. I'm 99% certain that your child has 22Q, 11.2 deletion syndrome, um, but we're going to need to run a fish test to confirm it. And we were just floored. Had you ever heard of it before? No, I'd never heard of it. I'd yeah. never heard of any of the syndromes under it. I'd never met anyone with it. I'd never heard of it. Had no idea. So what was the next couple of days like? What did they tackle first? Well, first things were her heart. She had two holes in her heart and a PDA. It's the patent ductus arteriosus. Normally it's open in utero. And then when babies are born, it closes itself off because they're, they're moving from their circulatory system with the mother, and then they transfer into their own circulatory system. Well, in hers, that little flap, which just normally was whoop and closes, stayed wide open. So she had blood flow going up way where it wasn't supposed to go. Oh no. So those, those first couple of weeks were hairy. Did they operate right away on her heart? They did not. They did not. They put her on digoxin. So she was on heart failure medication. And basically that first cardiologist told me the scariest thing I'd ever heard, which was, you know, here's the list of things to look for in case your child is going into heart failure. Um, And also don't screw up the medicine dose or you'll kill her. Uh, Really good bedside manner. No, he did not remain as our cardiologist. Mm -hmm. So did you stay in the NICU? Did she have to stay in the NICU? She stayed in the NICU for about 10 days. I wanted to make sure like her lungs were clear. I think she had swallowed some junk and they were worried about that. And 
they were just running baseline testing and doing all that stuff on her to make sure she was good to go. She had really terrible feeding issues too. So we were trying to get that worked out and try to figure out how on earth do we feed this kid who has, you know, adamantly refused to nurse, can't get good suction, can't handle a regular nipple, is struggling with a cleft nipple. Like that part of it was just really a mess. You know, I had breastfed mm -hmm. two babies before with no issues. So to have this one not be able to latch was just, it was crazy. And not only did she not want to latch, she was like adamantly thrashing to get away from me. Mm -hmm. it was strange. I mean, in retrospect now, I'm like, oh, well she had, she had lip ties and like ties in her mouth that like, we didn't even, we didn't really even address it then because that wasn't the primary problem, you know? Yeah. So, and what's a, what's a lip tie? Um, it's where the skin is connected basically like oh. above your teeth, that gum area is still connected to your lip. Who knew? Who knew? I had no idea. Yeah. So that started the journey of like, oh my goodness, this kid is going to be hard to feed. Yeah. So, so what did you guys do? Home. We brought her home after 10 days and I basically went on a journey of trying to figure out how do I feed a baby that can't really suck? How do I get calories into this kid who like does not have the natural understanding that most babies, I feel like they're born with this natural sense of how to suck and to have that suck reflex. And she just didn't have it to feed this kid, but I don't want to choke her. Like you can't right. just pour liquid into their mouth and expect they're going to swallow it because then she could aspirate on it. Mm -hmm. So feeding her was, that was a, it was a nightmare, honestly. <laughs> how did you resolve it? Um, well, I pumped for gosh, the first four months, I think. And then I just couldn't do it anymore. I was exhausted and my thyroid tanked, like mm -hmm. literally just, it, it was basically shutting down and I didn't mm -hmm. know it. I thought maybe there was something wrong with me. Obviously I was out of energy and couldn't get up on the couch and, you know, but you think, well, I have this special baby and I'm up all hours of the night trying to feed her. I'm worried about failure to thrive. Maybe that's it. Um, and thankfully someone was kind enough to say, Rachel, you need to go see the doctor. Thankfully they did. I mean, yeah, my, my numbers were ridiculous. Like and on a thyroid chart, you want your number to be like between, I think that one is like a zero to seven number or something. I was at like 126, like, wow, way off the charts. Wow. Thankfully, you know, that doctor didn't just blow me off as postpartum either you know, yeah. because I was crying a lot because I was sad. I think that would have been most people's first thing. I'm like, oh, well, of course she's depressed. She just had this baby. That's a mess. Um, mm -hmm. and thankfully he was able to catch it by running a thyroid panel at the same time. So in the midst of that, um, she was failure to thrive. I mean, I was doing all sorts of things, thickening, adding calories, boosting calories, doing stuff that my doctor even recommended to me that seem a little unconventional, like adding a little bit of corn oil into the one milliliter syringe and putting that in her cheek to swallow with her breast milk, like yeah. anything to get calories into her. Mm -hmm. um, and around four months, we switched to formula because, you know, I was at my wit's end and she got sick. And then that all kind of spiraled into a GI bleed. It's kind of a whole other long story. I think mm -hmm. her little gut just couldn't take the antibiotics. She's got her first fever and her first 
ear infection. My theory is that that medication was too much for her gut to handle, and it led to her having this horrible GI bleed. Um, and that was a whole other traumatic thing. Right. So she was inpatient, and they gave her a G, an NG tube while she was in the hospital. Um, and we were there for like five weeks. For the GI bleed, we were inpatient, like through a big chunk of the summer. Mm-hmm. So my other kids, I don't even know how. It's amazing. Um, all all the props to the grandparents. They remember that summer. One of them said it was the best summer of my life. Oh, man. We get so worried about how our other kids are going to handle it. And they remember that as the best summer of their lives yeah. because they were basically on like vacation with the grandparents for weeks. They got to go to the mm-hmm. zoo. They got to go to the park. They got to go for ice cream. They were lots of ice cream. I was going to say that. fun stuff. Yeah. So they don't really have memory of that, which I'm glad for. Yeah. Um, but once she came home, she did come home with an NG tube mm-hmm. and a pick line. How did you feel about that at first? Oh, that was scary. The pick line was scary. All of it was scary because at that point, she kept having these GI bleeds and they never could say what would make it stop. Really? Okay. So it wasn't one time. No, no, no. She was continuously like having these diapers that I don't even want to describe to you like for months. Like it went basically from June into September and, and every time it would happen, you know, they would, they would check her hemoglobin and it would get to a certain point and they'd be like, well, we got to give her another blood transfusion or she's going to die. Wow. So we did that like five times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was still, you know, once we had the NG tube, that was great. Cause then she had nutrition coming in. So I was learning to do like bolus feeds with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned to put them in because she's a little feisty stinker and would just rip it off her face. So I reinserted the NG tube uh, at least 40, 41 times that one. I kept count on I'm like, this is ridiculous. You, I, I can't, I can't keep putting this tube back in you. This is horrible. Yeah. No mom wants to place an NG tube in their, in their kid that many times. No. So the, the next surgery that we had, we, they did end up putting a G tube in and that mm-hmm. scared me initially. And then ended up being just the hugest lifesaver. Like mm-hmm. zero regrets. Now I tell people like, don't fear the G tube. It was just a godsend. Yeah. Oh, that is a <laughs> lot. That's a lot for the first year. How did the GI bleeds sort of pan out? What was the solution? And when did they kind of go away? There was no particular solution. It was it was kind of a medical mystery. Honestly, our hospital, they, they were having conferences with, you know, Lurie and Northwestern and other places. They were like, all these top doctors were putting their heads together, trying to figure out what on earth do we do? You know, they'd run so many tests on her and we ended up doing an exploratory lap where they basically like cut into her intestines and scoped either direction, trying to figure out where it was even coming from. And that didn't give us a clear answer. Oh, wow. But we got the hernia fixed while we were doing that. So, okay. And how old was she for the hernia? That was five months. Okay. She was five months for that. And is that sort of a simple surgery? It's still very dangerous. 
risky. The, the, the lap surgery itself was risky. It came with the risk of them perforating intestines or her bowel and then having major, major complications from it. So that was really like a last ditch effort to try to figure out like, what do we do for this poor baby? Mm -hmm. um, and then after that surgery, you know, it just kind of tapered off. Obviously there were people praying like all over the country right, for her, but there was no seeming like rhyme or reason as to why it stopped when it did. And mm -hmm. it did kind of crop back up again and then go away. And then it would crop back up again and then it would go away. And then finally it just stopped happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So first year of life, four surgeries, major surgeries. Well, let's see. That first surgery was the, the lap and the hernia repair. And then the next one was a three surgery combo because okay. my hospital is awesome. Um, they did her first ear surgery and G-tube insertion and palate repair on the same day. Wow. So what was going on with her ears? She was already having recurrent ear infections. I think that was when her first set of tubes was put in. And she was already having like major, major ear issues. Mm -hmm. And she had, she has really small ears, really tiny eustachian tubes. The placement of that was really kind of necessary for her. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the long run, I think we ended up having we had more than 10 sets of ear tubes. I stopped counting, honestly, how many surgeries we did just for her ears because she'd had, you know, the same thing. We got to like 36 ear infections and I just stopped counting. Like, this is right. silly. What's the point? But, you know, the ear tubes were super, super helpful. Mm -hmm. Made it so that I didn't have to bring her into the specialist every single time she had an ear infection. Right. And we were already seeing like 12 different specialists because she's a midline queen. 22, mm -hmm. it affected her head to toe. It's funny. One of the nurses called it that. And I was like, oh, what? Yeah. A midline queen? She's like, yeah, in the directions with 22Q, that final direction is putting the side pieces together. So it's the closing of the two sides of the palate. And it's the closing of the two sides of the diaphragm. And it's the closing of all these things. And hers was missing directions to close. So the palate didn't get closed and the heart didn't get closed and the stomach didn't get closed. And the, I mean, the muscles, abdominal muscles. So yeah. like all of these things that happen with her, they're all basically midline. midline. And yeah. how's her spine? Uh, she's missing part of a vertebrae. So, wow. so how does that, that affect her? Interesting on an x-ray. Yeah. She, at a very young age, when we were doing x-rays for something else, it was spotted that she had scoliosis and she was only, I want to say like 18 months at the time, maybe oh, like wow. two. Mm -hmm. And they spotted it and said, okay, this kid already has scoliosis. And we were like, what? You don't spot that until kids are 10. But if you think about it, you know, when somebody's missing part of their, a bone that holds their spine straight, then of course it's going to, it's going to fall down on itself. So that's what it did. So we watched it and we tried to brace it. And hers was so severe that she had her first spinal surgery at five. And that one held steady, but it didn't do exactly what we hoped it would do. Mm -hmm. And um, the time she was like 11, it was getting bad. Like 
when when you think of somebody with like impaired breathing scoliosis, like that's where she was at. It was literally crushing her organs. Mm. Um, her. So is it? It was in the upper. Like which vertebrae was it? Um, T four is the okay. one that's missing part of it. It's like a hemi. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she had like a an S curve to compensate. Got it. Uh-huh. And kyphosis. And what's so that? That is when you get like a shoulder hump. The kyphosis is like the the outward protrusion of the rib cage. Mm-hmm. So she kind of had scoliosis in like three different directions. And wow. It was a stabilization at age five and then a a permanent solution, the best we could do when she was like 11. Mm-hmm. So she has two titanium rods that are placed and will not move. So she's done growing in that area of her spine. And, you know, hers was so severe. She was nearly at, she was almost at 90 degrees. Wow. So her repair is what other people's severity looks like. Like the, the straightest they could get her without causing damage and with her, her body being able to take it and not reject it. She's at about a 63 degree curve now with it repaired. I mean, Mm -hmm. for most people that's extremely severe and they're getting surgery at like 45 to 55 degrees. So she's walking around living life, doing great. (laughs) Yeah. But she's a little bit shorter than most people. Just that is part of the reason why. Will she have to have reoccurring surgeries or is that it for the spine? The hope is that that is the final spinal surgery. Okay. It is possible, but very unlikely that she Mm -hmm. would need an adjustment to the actual hardware. Right. I don't even want to ask this question, but are there any other surgeries I missed? Sure. (laughs) no it's just you guys have she has gone through a lot you have gone through a lot your family has gone through a lot that's a lot so what are we missing so we did spine palate we we did a heart calf she had her pda repaired when she was about two and they were able to do that through her groin and send us on the same day which is like blow your mind insane yeah. I had to keep her still for like four hours. Oh my gosh. How yeah. old was she? Take your two-year-old. Oh my God. Give them surgery. Now they have to lay flat on their back for four hours. And if you can keep them in position, then you can go home. Oh my God. <laughs> can they be drugged is the question. Nope. Oh. No, they cannot. I mean, obviously they were, I think they gave her some Tylenol, oh but no, gosh. you can't just sedate them because they're coming out of sedation from the surgery. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And did she, she did. She was a rock star. Of course she was. Well, they're warriors. I, I had a bag packed of all of the ways and things that I was planning to keep her distracted. What what word would you use to describe your daughter? She I asked her about that. I said I can think of so many words. And she agreed with me that spunky is probably the best word. I like it. Because she doesn't come off like, I am a warrior queen. She comes off as like this fun, cute, happy, spunky kind of kid. Like she's got literally a spine of 
titanium, you know, like she's been through so much. And yet, you know, <laughs> the thing that all 20 GQ parents say, you know, you can't tell by looking at her. Yeah. That's the thing I write in my start of the school year letter to all of her teachers. You will not be able to tell this child's history by looking at her when she walks into your class because she will walk in like a bubble of joy and you'll just have no idea. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she's also had. <laughs> you I have to laugh. Final chapter. To laugh I do. It. Like, I don't mean to laugh. It's really not funny. I know. I was just trying to go through my list of all of the things like. Did I cover the spinal tap? Did I cover the, you know, yeah. there's just been so many different procedures and things that she's had where, you know, her eye pressure got really high. And then we were worried about the pressure in her brain and like just random weird stuff that mm -hmm. like never same thing. It didn't resolve until she got the spinal tap. And then it stayed right on the threshold of borderline normal to high. And we just went, oh, well, is this mm -hmm. gen normal? Okay. Like, what can you do about it? Nothing, yeah. just like live life watching always for signs and symptoms of there to be a problem with this or there to be a problem with that. Yeah. And how is she doing now? She's really awesome. Yeah. You know, like you would never know that she was in early intervention therapies. She didn't talk till she was three and a half. Like she did speech and OT and PT and like, you name it we were doing it was in mm -hmm. like the special preschool, which was super cool that our, our first steps just kind of transition right into a special preschool that transitioned right in with an IEP into our elementary school. I mean, that was, that was a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now the main things that she's dealing with, I think are her, her vision and her hearing are probably the two things that are most noticeable. Like she has zero depth perception okay. and we kind of knew that when she was younger, but we have finally had it fully confirmed that that is something that's not going away and is not fixable. So it's making it so she will not ever be able to drive or do things that require depth perception. So as we explore, you know, her future, we're looking at like, okay, well, what jobs would you be interested in doing? It's really strange to, to make a list in your head and think, well, you know, oh, well, she can't do that one because she doesn't have depth perception. Oh, well, she can't do that one because like things you don't think about, I'm like, wow, that would be so much harder if I couldn't see the way that I see. So mm -hmm. that's part of the physical challenges is, you know, that lack of vision and also right. her hearing impairment. But mm -hmm. I feel like she's been dealing with that for so long. It, I don't think it phases her in the same way. Yeah. Is she mild to moderate? Now it's mixed. She has conductive loss and sensory neural loss. She has a perforation in the one ear where she had a tube that fell out and it never rehealed itself. And we did a surgery to try to repair that. We did a patch. I was a graft of her own tissue, which was really cool. Um, and unfortunately it failed eventually. Mm -hmm. So now she has a little bit of loss in that ear still, and we're looking at another surgery for that. And um, the other ear is, that's the sensory neural moderate loss. And okay. it's a backwards curve. That's the thing that I like to tell people. It's backwards from like old people when they lose their hearing. 
and they can't hear women and small children in high pitches. Hers is the opposite. She can't hear helicopters and low frequencies, lawnmowers, dad talking, men's voices. The low frequencies are where she doesn't hear. So when she was little, we thought, honestly, that she was being ornery at the table and ignoring my husband. And it turned out, no, she just wasn't hearing him at all. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We had her bad ear facing him at the table because we didn't know at the time and just thought like, wow, this kid is really being obstinate. (laughs) Nope. Wow. Yeah. So that didn't, that was questionable. She had questionable hearing tests as an infant. I'm like, I think she got flagged in the beginning and then we Mm -hmm. kept doing them and kept doing them. And she, you know, doing hearing tests on a 12 month old is just, it's not fun. No, it wasn't until she was three that we managed to get a full diagnostic, perfect read on both ears and discovered, yes, for sure. This is where her loss is. Yes. She needs a hearing aid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And were the hearing aids successful for her? Yes. Good. Yep. Good. Well, that's a lot. She has gone through a lot. You have gone through a lot. How has she dealt with all of this? I think when she was little, she looked at it as like, well, this was her life. She didn't know any different. Mm -hmm. Like mom says, we got to go see this doctor. Okay. Okay. Mom says we got to go see this doctor. Okay. Well, it's time to go get your teeth cleaned. Okay. You know, all of that stuff that it was just, sorry, honey, I'm sorry. Your teeth are bad and you have to get cavities when you're really little and we have to get them filled. It's not your choice. It's not our choice. It's just how it is with this set of teeth. Maybe your next set will be better, which by the way, they are, which is fantastic. Um, Sealants also really great. Um, But yeah, I think she just accepted it as like, this is what life is like. And so when she was in school, she was starting to understand more, like other kids don't have the same stuff that she has to do. And I think it took her until teen years to actually start thinking about and processing some of the trauma that she's been through. And she's been doing that a lot more lately, um, just kind of realizing the things that helped her when she was younger and how important, you know, some of the movies were that she watched after she had her spinal surgery, you know, she was not able to go to school and was stuck at home in a wheelchair or on the couch for like six weeks. Um, and you know, the teacher was coming to our house and all that sort of thing. But like, initially you can't move, you're stuck for like hours. Obviously you have to get up and move, but it's really limiting. You're not allowed to bend past 90 degrees. There's all sorts of healing to do. And so she watched a lot of movies because what else can you do when you're stuck Mm -hmm. in a hospital bed for hours and days and days and days. So she has come to now be you know, a teenager coming to me like, mom, first of all, she has started rewatching some of the movies that she watched then with closed captioning on and is having so so much joy in understanding all of the lines that she didn't quite catch when she was little. Um, because, you know, when you're three and you're watching a movie, even with your hearing aid in, you can't read yet. So even if we had the closed captioning on, she still couldn't have read it. So now she's enjoying kind of going back and watching some of that and picking up on some of the dialogue and chuckling Mm -hmm. over it. But she's also come to me and said, Hey, you know, 
I cried when I watched this movie because I realized just how much it meant to me when I was stuck after that surgery. Mm. So that's big. That's, that's big to me that she's having these like emotional realizations and that, you know, we have her set up with her own therapist that she can talk to about it because it was my hope that as she got older, you know, that she would want to, or be able to process that in therapy. Yeah. So that's a lot of big feelings that she's having and sharing with you. And I'm glad that she is vocalizing those feelings with you and that she has a therapist that she can talk to about these. And I was just wondering also what other mental or social challenges has she been facing? I would say, well, this year she started high school. So that is a whole new thing. Like back in elementary, you know, we were coping with all of her medical stuff and learning basic elementary things. And I feel like her journey was known because I would go into the classroom and talk to the kids about, hey, Jen's out of school because she's having this surgery. You know, let's read this story and talk about it. What, who do you know that has stuff going on kind of a thing? And they would always, they'll always chime in and say, well, my mom has this or my grandpa has this or my sister has this because everybody knows somebody that has an invisible difference. Um, so I feel like in elementary, she was very well supported by her peers. And as she got older, you know, she started having more anxiety and having more difficulty, which I think is pretty typical with middle school anyway, but her mental health challenges definitely got bigger as she got older. And so she's been dealing more with intrusive thoughts and kind of scarier stuff that you, you don't like to think about when your kids are little. I mean, I didn't know anything about that. And now that I know that that's tied to her anxiety and OCD, I have a different level of comfort with it. Um, Also, since then, she has, since being diagnosed, she's been in some intensive therapy programs and has her own person that she talks to. And so I feel like she has a better understanding now of what that is and how to deal with it. She has more tools in her toolbox, so to speak. And so we're just kind of going along from there. But Mm -hmm. um, socially speaking, it's hard because she is 15, but mentally or socially speaking, she doesn't always act like a typical 15 year old. So I'm really grateful that she has a best friend who's awesome and loves to do the same kind of stuff that she loves to do. Um, but I understand that for a lot of people, that's that's not the case. And that that is, it's a big heartache for parents mm-hmm. because we want, we want our kids to be loved and accepted. So yeah. um, I think I pushed her into therapy because of my fear of psychosis, if that makes any sense. I feel like that mm-hmm. word gets thrown around a lot in our community and I didn't know what it was. And I was afraid of, you know, the big word psychosis and schizophrenia and just trying to figure out like, well, if that were to come, what would that look like and how would I handle it? And I thought, well, the best thing I can do now is get her set up with somebody so that we have our own mental health providers in place that know her, that can be tracking her, that can be watching, that can be, you know, a sounding board for me to see, is there anything I need to be worried about? Is the reality of 22Q that you just never know. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're doing all the right things. It sounds mm-hmm. like she's in all the right therapies and tools, like you mentioned in her toolbox to help her along the way. And How has this journey been for you? I know we've talked about this privately about your own recovery journey from post-traumatic stress 
and all of the first year of life and surgeries and scary times, but what would you like to share about your journey? I think everybody has different reasons why they would want to go to therapy. And it wasn't until I had Jen that I realized like, okay, I don't have enough of me. I don't have enough bandwidth to manage this kid. And I've been super traumatized by this medical stuff. I mean, it's not typical to see a rectal prolapse. It's just not. So having all of these different things kind of led me down that path to, I need to take care of myself and I need to figure out what to do with me before I fall apart. Like I can't, I can't take care of my family if I'm in pieces. So Mm -hmm. I was looking for a therapist and found one that was trained in EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Typically used, I think, or most known for being used by like ex-military people for their PTSD. Um, And so I found a therapist that could do it and started working with her on some of these traumas and things. And it was life-changing. It was absolutely life-changing. Yeah. You know, at the time was, it was life-changing in that I could like function more. Now, years later, it's still doing things for me where, you know, I thought I was good. I thought I had reprocessed all the things I needed to reprocess. Fast forward five years and suddenly we have another rectal prolapse and my brain flipped out. Like I thought Mm -hmm. I was good. We'd reprocessed, you know, all the surgeries and all the traumatic things that happened in hospital, like all the things I could think of, I had worked through, I thought. And when that happened again, this last spring, my, my brain just like short circuited (laughs) and I went back to her and was like, help. You know, I thought, I thought we were done. Like, what do I do? How do I get back to me? Let me, let me just say like having a therapist is really important in this journey you know, yes, it's important to have family and friends, but for me personally, it was very important to have a therapist to help me process my own stuff, to help mm-hmm. me figure out, you know, what is the best way to move forward and how do I deal with this medical trauma and how can I better function to be the best mom I can be? If I can do life well and I can help raise her well and I can help other families in the process and I can give God the glory by saying like, you know, he told me that this was going to be special. And I just, you know, I just misunderstood, but to be able to say that, you know, God is good. And he was there in the hardest times, you know, in the, in the shower, when you're crying on your knees, you know, nobody's in the shower with you when you're at your weakest. Mm -hmm. And he's been faithful through this journey. To to be present and also to bring people to uplift me and to support me and to pray for me. Not just me saying, oh, God can do everything, you know. (sighs) It's okay. I mean, when you sent me that text message, what I started with, you you had said more in that text message. And when I was reading it, I was crying. Then immediately wrote back to you and I was like, reread what you just wrote because I'm crying due to how much trauma and 
unbelievably terrifying moments of not knowing if your baby's going to be okay and then not knowing if you're going to be okay and just sort of spiraling health-wise. It's so much. And I think your story is powerful because it ebbs and flows. And even when you think out of your eyes and cross your T's, something else comes along and you need to go back to your mental health and do a check-in and make sure you're doing all right. And that's life with your Mm -hmm. mental health. Like mental health is never just like, oh, okay, I did it. I went to a therapist. I'm good. It's it's ongoing. I know it's been ongoing for me for many years, seeing a therapist and it will be forever. I'm getting off the topic. My point being is I'm grateful that you're willing to share your journey with therapy and EMDR, because I think it's a resource that many people haven't maybe even heard of and could be helpful in this community. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I feel like there are so many, so many topics that could be useful for people to know or to know yeah. somebody who has had, you know, a G tube or who knows how to do an NG tube or knows how to do a G tube, knows how to do a pickle, and knows how, like there's all of that knowledge, but then there's also the IEP stuff. You know, you go through the, the birth to little section, then you go through the elementary school with the IEPs. And, you know, Donna Cutler Landsman and the 22Q Family Foundation were just so helpful when I needed it most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I really feel like that was fantastic in helping us through IEP sections and lands of hard times that ebbed and flowed. And now we're in that next section of, you know, it it felt like every three years we were getting a new diagnosis and I keep waiting like, oh no, we're coming up on the third year. Are we going to get another one? Other than Donna Cutler-Landsman's book, are there any other books or resources that have been super helpful for you along this journey? Absolutely. The books that I recommend to people, the Educating for 22Q book, which is like the 22Q educational Bible kind of a thing. Um, but also for our kids, there's a series called What to Do When, and it includes you know, anxiety, OCD, anger, all sorts of things. And those books have been really helpful for us when I was getting to the point where we're trying to figure out what do we do next? How do I tackle this? You know, what to do when you dread your bed, what to do when your temper flares, all of those things that happen in elementary school, those books were so fantastic. I really highly recommend them. That was kind of, to me, the step before we went to therapy was working through some of those workbooks and trying to give her tools that I could give her that way. Um, There's also a set of books called Nonverbal Learning Disabilities at School by Pamela Tangway. The school one's red, the home one's blue, and they read like somebody wrote the book on my kid. So that's been really helpful at home and at school. Um, But personally, for me, the other one that, you know, I think I would want to bring up because of all of the trauma and things that I've been through is a book called The Body Keeps the Score, because our bodies do. When we go through traumas, our bodies actually retain and do things with that. And so it's a fascinating, fascinating resource and just a really excellent book. And so I like to remind people, you know, not only has your kid maybe been through open heart surgery, but you have been through the trauma 
of being with your kid through that open heart surgery or being with your kid through that terrible evaluation or that time that you had to help pin them down or, you know, the 50th time that you had to help pin them down for a blood draw or whatever it is, like all of those things take a toll on us and, and on the kids. So I think I was kind of looking at it as a two prong thing. That one's great for us as adults, but it's also great as a way to think about how is this affecting our children and how can I help my child to overcome their trauma as well. Mm-hmm. I am going to check out that book. I think that's great. Thank you for sharing all of those. Mm-hmm. And what has your daughter taught you about yourself? I think, I think she changed me. Obviously she changed me, but I think she made me deeper and a better human Um, because now I feel like I have a different perspective of trying to meet people where they are you know I went to see a show and ended up with a seat next to a guy who was obviously impaired and very excited to be there and couldn't contain some of his sounds at times and I it was such a joy to me to sit next to him because he was enjoying it and I just knew you know anyone else in the whole theater might have been so irritated with this guy for like making these sounds or rustling the seed or doing things Um, and I just I feel like I just have a different perspective now I don't know yeah you view the world differently one she teaches me like you you can't stop living you know, just because it's hard, just because you have to do the things you have to do, you can't stop. You got more life to live. And just because it's really hard now doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Yep. First of all, I want to touch upon that. I think you're right in the sense of um, sitting by that young man that was very excited at the theater. I think that is wonderful that you now have a different perspective of the world. and you're right. Most people would probably have gotten annoyed, which is sad because other people are missing out on the joys and the perspective that we have as 22Q parents that we can all share with each other. But our friends and family may never see that perspective because they can't. They weren't there when you are holding down your kid for a blood draw. They aren't there when your kid's having a tantrum over a very simple thing and they're maybe at an age where they shouldn't be having a tantrum and everyone's staring at you, but you don't care because you just do it because you're a parent. But thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing that book with us. I'm definitely going to take a look at it. And before we end, I have to ask you this question. When you found out about your diagnosis for 22Q, and if you could go back in time to that very moment and tell yourself some something, what would it be? Mm. That's a hard one. <laughs> I think I figured it out along the way, but it would have been good to know in the beginning, just do today. You don't have to think about what's going to happen in the future. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to waste time in fear. Just live right now and do today. Mm-hmm. Great advice. Tomorrow will come. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a new set of challenges. Just work through today. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I love you, Rachel. Oh, I love you too. <laughs>
Is there anything that I made out of mention that you want to touch upon before we close? Well, I feel like some of the things that we didn't, that I didn't talk about are the sensory thing, but that, that is still an issue. That is Mm -hmm. still a thing that's hard because it went from being a little kid that needed to wear headphones to see a parade to a teenager that doesn't want to be in public. Mm Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, going to a church service is really hard because mm-hmm. it's such sensory overload. And how do you grapple with that when you, you know, you want to teach your kids spiritual things, you want them to be part of the community and have the fellowship and the support. And yet you understand that that is just physically and mentally exhausting and difficult for them. Mm-hmm. So that's one of our ongoing challenges I think is just grappling mm-hmm. with that side of you know the autism part of it right yes Other life experiences yeah yes definitely there are definitely times that she does not want to do things with us she has trouble sometimes if people just stop by the house and she doesn't know that they're coming that's that's been kind of a bigger deal lately where mm-hmm. it, she's got her patterns and her routines and mm-hmm. when that's changed it is disturbing to her and so Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm already kind of seeing we had conversations about vacations and will you go on vacation with us if we go here and what if we want to go here and you know one of my dreams is to be able to go to France and she doesn't want to go to Europe Mm -hmm. so then I think well would I take a vacation without her Mm -hmm. that's one of the weird (laughs) maybe not weird just one of the hard things I think about them turning into adults and trying to navigate life with them as young adults. You know, I, I, if, if we want to take a quote unquote family vacation, but one of the family members doesn't want to go, how do you deal with that? Right. And, and do you take a trip without one of your kids because they don't want to go and they would be much happier at home. It's so stressful for her Mm -hmm. to do some of those new things that sometimes it isn't worth it it's it's yeah. really difficult for her and it will be a, a touch and go thing see how much she can handle see how yeah but it is one of the, I know I I struggle with that as well in the sense of um I struggle with knowing my son's limits right now but also in the back of my mind thinking he's in a safe environment should I be pushing him in a safe environment So that way, when he's in the real world someday and out of control of the situation, he'll have the skills to teach himself how to calm down, um, accept change. And I struggle with that all the time. Like, what is Mm -hmm. the limit? What is the perfect amount of working towards a goal, but also realizing that sensory is sensory and it's hard. It's really hard. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. And I did want to ask one last question that if Jen ever heard this podcast someday, what would you want her to know from here from mom? Mm. That she's worth it. She is funky and special and fun and important. Well, I have been looking back and just remembering all the different things that were traumatic for us and, um, I would want her to know that I did my best. You sure did. 
She's so lucky to have you. Well, we didn't even get into your book either. <laughs> so much. Two episodes for Rachel. But um, I did want to do a, a quick shout out for your book. If anybody would like to find it, they can find it on. The ebook is on Amazon. It's just mm-hmm. Jen living with invisible differences. Mm-hmm. It is also orderable. You can just shoot me an email. Where did I write that down? I should know my own email. <laughs> I can put it in the description. <laughs> we could talk about it later. Well, thank you. Thank you for writing that book for all of us. Because it is invisible. Thank you, Becky. It was so nice talking to you. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. You inspire me in so many ways. And for anyone who wants to see her book, Just Jen, Living with Invisible Differences, or get a copy, You can by going on Amazon and getting an e-copy of the book or a hard copy via Facebook message or email to R-S-H-I-B-B-A-R-D author at gmail.com. Just visit the description of this podcast to see more. And to our 22Q family, thank you so much for listening and never forget that you are not alone.